The following program gives personal opinions and is intended to provide entertainment and information only. It is not considered to be any form of legal, investment, appraisal, or inspection advice whatsoever. Listeners are encouraged to secure two to three bids from competing contractors for specific issues pertinent to their home or situation. Welcome to Real Estate Unveiled, where we pull back the shades to give you the truth and nothing but the truth about real estate with a laser focus on everything about home inspections and real estate appraisals. That's right. We're here to demystify the real estate process and take the fear and anxiety out of the equation to unearth the real scoop about home inspections and the real estate appraisal process. Oh, if homes could talk. Well, that's our job. I'm Tim Hance, board-certified master home inspector and owner of All Islands Home Inspections. And I'm Elizabeth Hance, Washington State certified real estate appraiser and owner of All Islands Appraisal. Consider us your truth tellers, unbiased ambassadors of and mouthpieces for the home. We're delighted to be here. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're excited to be interviewing David Bradley, who together with his wife, Isabel, started Bradley Engineering in 2001. David holds a BS degree in mechanical engineering and a master's degree in business administration. Bradley Engineering, based in Bellingham, Washington, services all of Whatcom, Skagit, San Juan, Snohomish, and King counties with their structural needs. Clients include homeowners, designers, architects, contractors, business owners, business managers, and nonprofits. David prides himself on being practical, cost-effective, and simple, which I think is awesome because we don't need to overly complicate anything in life. You can reach David Bradley at 360-752-5795 or through his website, www.bradleyengineeringinc.com. David, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for participating. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Awesome. So let's let's get right into it, David. Um, one of the major issues that comes up or of clients' concerns in both real estate and home inspections concerns foundation cracks. And, you know, so I'll be walking around a home and there'll be a crack in the foundation or there's a crack that, that a client noticed in the foundation. And so let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, which types of cracks are important um, and which are just kind of normal, typical settling or shrinkage or what have you cracks. Um, what, what are your thoughts about foundation cracks in general and specifically? Yeah, you bet. Um, well, let's see. Uh, basically, foundation cracks, um, they, they do kind of come with territory. That's just the way concrete is. Uh, and, you know, generally speaking, if the crack is not roughly, uh, if it's less than, you know, an eighth of an inch or less, and there's, uh, and there's not, you know, there's not that many, and it doesn't extend down to the footing. Um, generally speaking, we're not really that concerned with it. Uh, there, there's a kind of a few exceptions, and uh, and that's if it if it's been changing. Uh, you know, in, in the la- let's say it's a, a 30 year old house, and in the last few years, it's it's been kind of growing. We we do get concerned about that, um, and uh, so if it's stabilized over the years and it's not changing. Uh, you know, we're, we're really generally not uh, too concerned about it. It really depends on the type of foundation as well. If it's if it's poured concrete, you know, especially in the 70s or later, uh, we're 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 definitely generally not too concerned about it. Uh, again, it's 
it's it's hard to really generalize entirely because if there's too many, then obviously there, there could be a potential problem. Uh, the other thing is a lot of times it's uh, it's water issues, and uh, we found that a lot of times you know the, the downspouts can just be you know flooding the foundation, so it's just uh, it's just sitting sitting in water essentially the foundation. So uh, that's that's one of the the, the critical things is uh, is to look at the water and, uh, and and remediate the water, either putting in a, maybe a French curtain drain or looking at the uh, the downspouts. But w- water is super critical. So, David, I have a question. Right at the beginning there, you said something about mm-hmm. one eighth of an inch. Um, is that in length or width? What what uh, what does that refer to as far as that right. foundation yeah. crack? No, that that was the that was the width of the crack. Quite often, they can be longer than uh, than, than one inch. And uh, you know, I would say probably ninety percent of the houses really have some cracks that are there. You know. Um, like I say, it just sort of comes with the territory, you know, concrete being very brittle. Uh, and uh, so, no, I, I was referring to the, the width of the crack. Sometimes they can be pretty long. We generally don't like to see them in the footing. Uh, so in the in the stem wall, the concrete wall, that's definitely much more acceptable than, than in the footing. Um, so... Okay, and uh, the placement of the crack, horizontal and vertical. Did you? Did you? Um, could you tell us about that? Does it have any bearing on the determinations? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Generally speaking, it'll be either vertical or you know maybe sometime at an angle. There's typically it's not it's not really horizontal. Looking at it, right? Um, and it really just comes uh, from settling. You know the. The ground was not prepped well. There's, there might be some organic materials that were originally in the roots, um, you know, plants, et cetera, that, that have basically just rotted over time. So it's just kind of splitting the, the top of the wall open a little bit. And, you know, like I say, as, as long as it's stabilized, it's generally not really not an issue. One of the things that I tell clients all the time, kind of tongue in cheek, and you probably you maybe use this in your industry as well, is that concrete does two things. It gets hard. And it cracks, right? So you can have, you know, cracks are pretty commonplace in foundations. You can go into historic homes that are hundreds of years old that may have a one inch foundation crack, you know, and, and clients will be very concerned about that. But when I look at the nature of the crack, it's pretty clear that it's been like that for at least a hundred years and the house has been just fine for a hundred years. So those are pretty common, you know, go ahead, David. Sorry. No, I was going to, I agree completely. Yeah. And, and it's exactly what it is. It's, it's concrete is really just like a piece of chalk because you can imagine just a piece of chalk in your fingers and you try to compress it and you won't be able to break it. Um, you know, cause it's, so it's great in compression, but you try to snap a piece of chalk and it'll just break. So that's kind of the way, that's kind of the way concrete is. And, and yeah, I, I agree with what you just said, Tim. Yeah. And, and you said before water intrusion, uh, is, uh, you know, whether it's a concrete perimeter foundation or water assaulting the home water in my industry is really the source of 90% of the issues related to, um, structural issues for homes, mold, water damage, rot, carpenter ants, beetles, termites, all that stuff. Mother nature is constantly trying to assault the home. And, and if you are allowing water underneath the home or too close to the home, it can only lead to issues. And so a lot of the time it's related to, you know, water intrusion or moisture intrusion. Um, 
you know, one of the one of the questions that people will have is, you know, is you know to monitor a foundation crack as to whether it's active or historic, and so watching this over time. And with a new home buyer, you know, they really don't know because they're buying this house. And one of the, the uh, I read this a long time ago, so sometimes I'll recommend it, is uh, to take the foundation crack inside a, a crawl space where nobody ever goes into that space. So it's never disturbed. And to glue a glass microscope slide across the foundation crack with an multi-purpose adhesive, something like that, and see if it cracks over time. And if it does, that might suggest that there's an active crack. Are there any kind of like tricks that, that, that you might recommend for people to monitor foundation cracks to see if they're active or historic? No, I think that's a great idea. I like that. I've never heard of that. Uh, obviously, you know, with pictures, I would suggest probably just keep keeping a little photo log, you know, with digital pictures and putting up, you know, a, a good scale on top of it and and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, any of those methods I think would work fine. Right. And that's something as an appraiser that we, we would do for our clients, um, whether that's a lender or even a private party, if we see a crack in the foundation that is significant enough that we feel that it needs to be brought to the attention of, uh, the lender and the underwriter, we would photograph it and typically put some item, whether it's um, our tape measure or a pencil or something, up next to the next to the issue and include it in our appraisal report. Um, so that that's um, one way. There might be historical documentation of, of foundations if you have access to older appraisal documents and if if, if it was noted by the yeah. appraiser. And and everybody nowadays, well, most everybody has a smartphone with a camera. So it's pretty easy to throw a ruler or a tape measure or something to reference the size of that crack and just snap a picture of it. Text it yourself in case you clear your camera of photos so you've got a record of this or keep it somewhere safe. And then you can refer to it years down the line, take another picture and see if it's changed. David, I have another question um, about displacement. Um, when we see a foundation crack, and I, I'm assuming that that terminology means that the the crack is, you know, it varies in the depth or it's maybe pulling away or concaving in. Um, do you have anything to, to tell us about displacement of the uh, around a crack in the foundation? Displacement, I'm... I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that. Maybe I think what Liz might be referring to is this. Let's say that you're looking at a concrete foundation wall and there's a crack and one plane of the crack is uh -huh. displaced with respect to the other. What might that suggest? Um, or is that something that you, I honestly, I rarely run into that, but I I've read about it in, in, in textbooks. Oh, you mean it's sort of out of plane? It's, it's not in plane anymore. Right. Correct. Yeah. So displacement uh, of the crack. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's obviously that's that's a, that's definitely more serious. Um, yeah. Anytime there's there's a shift in kind of a translation, let's say in the in the uh, you know in the wall or the footing, I, I would I would yeah, that's definitely a red flag. So yeah, absolutely. Just displacement in that sense is. Um, is definitely of concern. That's great to know. I think one of our goals in this podcast is to enable sort of the average layperson to look at their home or to take a look uh, before an appraisal or a home inspection occurs and to have some information that they can use to know whether or not is this going to be a significant issue? Should I have it addressed? Um, or, you know, so that's very helpful to know if you see something where where sig significant displacement has occurred, then you you probably need to expect that it's going to come up. 
Yeah. And, and in my experience, mm-hmm. that's pretty rare. So, all right, we, we've talked about the exterior foundation walls. Let's move inside. So you go inside a house. Most homes have sheetrock wall and ceiling coverings and cracks are really common in the walls or the ceilings and can be a result of numerous things. Um, you know, when, when I usually tell people cracks, hairline cracks, of course, monitor it, but kind of the eighth of an inch or greater rule is something to keep in mind for whether or not a crack may be an issue. And even if it's at an eighth of an inch in width, it may not be an issue. There are phenomenons known as truss uplift that can cause this. You know, there may have been a seismic event years ago that caused it. A newer home can settle over time as it as it dries out or as the foundation just kind of does its little settling that it's not going to do much more throughout over t- or over time. So, you know, J- David, do you have any kind of general rules of thumbs or, or advice that you could give to homeowners about cracks and sheetrock and, you know, when there are issues? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We see this a lot, by the way. And uh, generally speaking on 90 plus percentage, they're just what we call nuisance cracks. So they're not really bonafide, you know, structural issues. Um, they're, you know, they're they're more or less shifting, uh, you know, shifting of the, you know, the, the wood is is very, uh, you know, susceptible to shifts in, uh, uh, you know, expanding and contracting. So it's it's a, it's actually very common, and uh, um, so it's it's really not a structural issue to be quite honest uh, for for most buildings. Uh, if, if we're talking tall walls, you know, let's say over 12 feet high, then it can potentially be an issue. But for the vast majority of, of houses and buildings, sheetrock cracks, they just happen, you know, because, you know, that's just kind of what happens to wood. Uh, and uh, sort of an interesting uh, project that we just came across here in Bellingham, it was a dental office that had tons of uh, it was about 10 years old, had tons of uh, sheetrock cracks. And then uh, we went and looked at it and we kind of dove into it and we noticed that it was uh, the, uh, it was a lead building, the LEED building, you know, the more energy efficient ones with uh, what's called advanced framing. And uh, it's kind of a fancy name, but basically it just, it's less lumber in the walls. And so all the studs were 24 inch on center. There's much fewer uh, studs supporting the headers, et cetera. And uh, so there was quite a bit of cracking on this. And, and we, we basically, we, we figure it was uh, partly just due to the less lumber in the walls due to the uh, what's called advanced framing. Um, but uh, yeah, generally speaking, uh, cracking in the sheetrock uh, falls into the category of a nuisance crack. Great. And that, that's a very interesting story to hear about. Um, I have a question about the location of any drywall or sheetrock cracking you might see. Is it more significant if it's placed, say, over a window or a doorway? Um, or does it, is it kind of just all, this, all the same inside of a home when you see a few nuisance or cosmetic cracks? Right, right. Um, well, it's a good question. It's obviously much more common around the corners of openings, you know, doors and windows. Uh, and that's just kind of the way it is. You get a bit of a stress um, a stress concentration right there at the corners, and it just wants to sort of unzip. Um, so it's extremely common. A really good solution to the uh, uh, the uh, the sheetrock cracks, and it's it's a, it's actually a great solution. It's a structural solution. 
uh, is basically just installing uh, plywood. Um, I, I would probably prefer plywood in this situation, but uh, plywood just on the inside, right over the sheetrock, you know, like half inch plywood and, you know, probably four inch on center, you know, nailing, uh, maybe like 10 penny, you know, ring shank nails, you get a little better grip and, and with adhesive and, you know, probably no VOC uh, adhesive. And, uh, and basically, uh, and that creates a box beam and it radically improves the, the, it creates like a vertical box beam, you know, kind of like an eye joist. And uh, it also improves the lateral, lateral resistance to wind and seismic forces. Uh, so it, it's a great solution. It pretty much should eliminate most or all future uh, sheetrock cracks too. And, and David, to be clear, do you install that over the sheetrock or? or? Oh, yeah, over the sheetrock. Yeah. And, and it's best to use some sort of an adhesive. Uh, like I say, a no, no VOC, you know, so it's a little cleaner and uh, just like, like 10 penny, you know, ring shank nails. You do have to block the edges like a shear wall to make it a little bit more robust. So it's not that easy, but it should take care of the problem. And then, and then to finish that, do, does a sheetrock contractor go over that with sheetrock again or, or? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if they can kind of mud right over the, uh, the, uh, the plywood. I think it really depends on the contractor or, or perhaps, uh, you would have to put an additional, you know, layer of sheetrock on, which is, you know, kind of burdensome and expensive. Um, the other alternative is to use, uh, what's called an MDO medium density overlay which is which is a sheathing so it's kind of like plywood but it also is more or less it has a nice surface so it uh it's kind of sheetrock and the rated sheathing so that would be another another possibility that's awesome so there are solutions so if these cracks are recurrent and you know possibly structural but likely not but they're they're driving you crazy they're in your living room or or what have you uh there's a fix whether it's mm-hmm. this overlay um you can do that or you know if uh big caulking doesn't work and you're sick of doing that uh there's definitely a fix and i like to tell people that that everything is fixable so you know let's just say getting into that 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 you you have a foundation crack that is has been determined to be of significance whether it's displacement or uh soils are settling and engineers come out or the inspectors come out and called this out i like to tell people that everything is fixable uh david what are some typical fixes generally speaking for foundation cracks if there's indeed a settling issue happening that the act the crack is active yeah, well, let's see here. Let me just back up. So, um, there's there's different types of foundations. You know, if if it is like a, a CMU block, you know, the concrete masonry block, um, you know, probably the first thing would be to to see if it's uh, if it's grouted or not, if it's filled. If it's a hollow CMU block, um, you're, you're pretty much uh, you're kind of toast to put it in really crude terms, um, unless you want to fill all of the blocks. Um, which is really, really not that practical. It can be done, um, but that would be really the first thing to check to see if it's, a, um, uh, you know, if, if it is grouted CMU block. Uh, and then the other thing is it's not too uncommon for the older homes, maybe pre-60s, to not even have a, um, a, a footing, believe it or not. It's just a stem wall sitting sitting on in the soil. And uh, so that that's obviously, that's, 
we wouldn't even really touch that. Um, you know, um, it's just, you know, you, you need a footing obviously. So, uh, so basically, um, you know, the, you know, so I'm talking like post sixties, post seventies, where you have a poured concrete foundation. And, uh, so, so there, there's a few things you can do. Um, I mean, first of all, you have to figure out if it's really justified. Um, and if it's justified, um, there are different, there are specialty, you know, concrete companies that will come in and, and pump a high compressive, you know, below the footing. Um, we've, we've also done where we, we drive some pin pile, you know, which is just pipe, you know, galvanized pipe, maybe two inch schedule 40 galvanized pipe. And you, you drive it with a jackhammer and, uh, you know, like every four foot or maybe six foot on center. And, uh, and then you fasten it to either the, the side of the, the, uh, the stem wall or, you, you know, you make a, a bracket and you fasten it right to the footing. So you're basically, uh, you know, installing pilings essentially to shore up the, uh, the foundation. And uh, so that's one way to do it. Um, you can also um, you can also put steel plate uh, on on to basically bridge the gap, and then just install uh, you know some wedge anchors, maybe like three sixteenths um, thick uh, steel plate. And uh, and so we we've done that as well to you know basically reinforce it. Um, so let's see what else. David, uh, that's all I can I think have, of right off the top of my I head. I have a question for you about what you uh, just shared with us. So commonly is one of those terms called underpinning. Is that the methodology that you just described? One of them? I I believe so. Yeah. Or, or pin piles. Yes. Okay. And then the, um, where, where the concrete is, is poured floated underneath the foundation. I've seen these advertisements on TV and I, uh, didn't know really if they had any legitimacy. So is that that is a, a real solution for a structural issue? You know, I, I don't I'm not familiar with the proprietary ones, but there's probably some good ones out there. I've always just uh, kind of taken a simple approach, just literally gotten galvanized pipe um, and then just driven it down, driven to refusal until it doesn't go anymore which sometimes is two feet, which sometimes is 10 feet. You know, you just drive it until it, it doesn't go anymore. And then you fasten it to the foundation. But there's probably some, you know, some custom products out there. I'm not familiar with it. But just on the, before I forget, a really nice solution on interior uh, issues, you know, sagging and, and uh, you know, lack of a bearing wall, which we're probably going to talk about later, is the, uh, uh, the 12-inch precast pier pads um to shore up the interior of the of the floor framing and uh so that's those are actually good for like 1500 pounds so they're they're stronger than most people realize right yeah and those are the ones you just see at the hardware store and they're just the concrete block exactly. with the bracket mounted into the yes. center okay yeah yeah those are very common and that's awesome i i love 
I love your simp I love your simple approach. These, you know, to and not everything's simple, of course, but I, I believe in simple elegance when we can do that. It's no need to unnecessarily complicate matters. You know, driving these galvanized rods into the ground and secure it to the foundation. That's fantastic. The the pier posts and the uh, intermediate portions of the home where you may have settling underneath an insufficiently supported wall, etc. There there really are some easy fixes. So the message that that uh, that I would like to convey, and it sounds like you're confirming, is that just because there's settling in a foundation, even if it's active, the fix, it, it's not necessarily catastrophic, nor is the fix necessarily... Um, I mean, I'm sure it's expensive. I mean, it, it's is it mostly labor driven, David? I think it's more. I think no, and I agree with that. I don't think it's really catastrophic, uh, provided it's poured concrete foundation. If it's a CMU block, that raises serious uh, concerns, um, especially hollow CMU block. And um, but in general, yeah, it's it's completely you know manageable, and, and there is some labor involved, but it's not it's not really that you know, overly expensive or burdensome. But again, like we talked about before, the water issue has to be taken care of as well. Right. The underlying issue that's causing the problem needs Mm -hmm. to be addressed. As an appraiser, often um, we will be asked to... um, to make a statement whether or not there's any struck if there's an issue with any structural integrity of the property and when we see something that we're either not expert in or something that looks significant um, we'll call for a structural engineer inspection and report some of my clients or our clients as appraisers um, will want us to estimate what they call the cost to cure, which is what Tim is talking about what's what is the fix for these issues um, do you have information you can share, even a range, you know, a, a very insignificant problem might be as low as a certain number and then a, a house that needs a lot of work. Um, because it, it's a it's a question that as an appraiser, we're very um, hesitant to answer because we, you know, we don't know the extent of it. We don't, we don't even know if it's truly a problem. Like you've indicated, sometimes uh, it's not a necessary repair. So um, estimating costs to cure. I think that hesitancy is wise. I, I, would, I would hold on to that hesitancy because it, it truly all depends. It all depends on the size of the house. You know, like you say, if it's even justified to, to make, you know, take any remediation. And then, uh, and then as far as what type of remediation. So I, I would not even hazard to really... Um, Put it, put a, put a number on it. Honestly, right. The range is too great, and and that's too just too much guesswork. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the way I feel. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you. And in that spirit, to clients, I always tell if let's say we have a significant issue that's discovered at the real estate appraisal at the or at the home inspection, it's it's imperative that clients have it further evaluated prior to closing by either a qualified elect, uh, qualified contractor or engineer uh, to determine you know each situation's unique and it may be a simple matter of uh, pinning a couple galvanized rods into the ground in the corner and that may fix it. And we're looking at whatever we're looking at, or it may be a significant issue of significant expense. And once that's further evaluated by somebody like David, uh, you can really narrow in and hone in on what the expense might be before you buy the house. Because I can tell you 90% of the time it costs more than you think it will cost. And if you discover that after you, exactly. own the, after you own the home, then that's your problem. But if you discover it before you own the home, there may be some room for negotiation with the seller. 
I would predict that mm-hmm. most most lenders, if something of significance is brought up in the appraisal, are going to wait to um, to go ahead, go through with the loan until there's more information um, and they know the extent of the issue. So, David, what what does it cost just to have someone come out to a property and do an evaluation of, say, a, a foundation crack or two? Um, in the area that, that yeah, we, we, live, live and yeah, work. Uh, l- let me just, yeah, l- yeah, let me just go back and then I'm going to answer that. You know, let me, let me just Absolutely. cap off the whole foundation crack and then I'll, add, and then I'll answer your question there. So, you know, based on our experience, the vast majority of the foundation cracks are, are, are really not significant and really don't justify any, you know, remediation. So uh, I would I would give it at least ninety five percent of the situations that we get called out on for cracks. It's like I say, it just sort of comes to the territory. So I, that's just a little context I wanted to throw in there. Most of the cracks are, are, and crack foundations um, really don't justify any remediation. So, anyways, now to answer this question. Uh, so, you know, we, we pretty much just stick to the Bellingham area for, for site inspections, you know, just because, you know, we don't want to be driving too far and we're pretty busy. So, um, but uh, we charge about $300 just to do a verbal, you know, so just to go out there and, uh, you know, give our, give our two cents, you know, verbally uh, to do a report um, can generally run between $500 and $1,000. Uh, you know, just a written report. And, uh, you know, if, if we're, you know, if we're going to be actually doing some retrofit, you know, it would be, you know, an actual detailed structural retrofit, you know, outlining the, the specific um, steps and details, you know, between one and $3,000, somewhere in that range. Great. Perfect. That's exactly, that's all very good information. Thank you. And I appreciate the context, David, that the great majority, 90, 95% of cracks are not of concern. Uh, and and if, if a client wants to have it further evaluated, they can have you come out and for about $300 in your local area, have it evaluated. And if a report, they want a report written, I'm a big fan of getting a report for everything. You know, you're going to spend $500 to $1,000, give or take, you know, to have something evaluated and something put in writing as to, uh, you know, it's not an issue or here's how to fix it. So, all right, let's shift gears. I think we've, we've talked quite a bit about foundations here. Uh, you know, one of the questions that I get all the time in home inspections, I feel like I'm hosting an HGTV show is, you know, we, we, (laughs) we want to do this open concept. We want to get rid of the partitioned rooms. You know, is this a load bearing wall? Is that a load bearing wall? How do we open it up? We really want to know how to do this. And, and I, and I tell clients, I'm like, you know, there, there's, there's always, well, I hate to say always, but the great majority is 99% of the time, there's a way to open up walls. Uh, you'll need to work with an engineer to do so. Uh, but you know, how can you tell David, if it's a technically a load bearing wall versus an intermediate, just partition wall? Right. Um, okay. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's just talk floor here first, and then we can talk roof here in a second, but floor um, generally speaking, um, uh, the, the easiest way is really just to look at your joists. And uh, if, you're, if your joists, uh, at most, uh, you know, if, if it is a floor, uh, if it is a, a floor uh, bearing wall, you know, you'll have the, the exterior walls are obviously bearing. And let's say you've got one wall 
between those exterior walls and and let's say it's 24 feet and uh, and then you've got you know floor joists sitting on top of there so in that situation that is going to be a load bearing wall because uh the kind of the rule of thumb we go by is like two by twelves. Uh, they will clear span eighteen feet, which is a which two by twelves are more or less uh, like eleven and seven H TJIs I joists. So if it's eighteen feet or more, then then we need uh, we need a, either a beam or or a load bearing wall. And then for the uh, two by tens, if you have two by tens, which is more or less equivalent to a nine and a half inch. Uh, TGI or I joist, uh, we, we kind of consider the, the clear span, and these are all kind of rough generalizations here, which are fairly accurate, uh, 15 feet. So um, if, if, if those are spanning more than 15 feet, uh, we need either a, a beam or a load-bearing wall. Um, and then the one last thing is, you know, you, you, you want to make sure it has to be a continuous joist. Um, so if, you know, uh, you know, if, if it is, let's say two by 12s are, are spanning 18 feet, uh, you know, you want to make sure those are continuous if you're going to be removing a, a wall. So that's kind of the floor system. As far as the roof, the roof is much more tricky, uh, you know. Um, so basically, if it's a, if it, if it's a manufactured uh, truss, you know, let's call it 70s or later, and you can actually see the metal, the metal truss plate on there. Those pretty much uh, 99% of the time, they just span exterior wall to exterior wall. So you can just, uh, generally speaking, remove, uh, uh, you know, uh, walls below those trusses because those just clear span exterior wall to exterior wall. If we're talking pre-70s, it's, it's a wild card and it's really hard to make any generalizations because a lot of times those were just site built. And uh, they do rely on the interior uh, walls um, for support. Uh, so, um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the summary on that in in a couple minutes. Yeah, that's that's excellent information. And I I like to tell clients, you know, listen, when in doubt, you you should always have a contractor. They're going to ask me, and I will give my opinion as to whether I believe it to be load bearing or not. But then I will say, listen, you really should have a qualified contractor further evaluate this, uh, and or an engineer to determine if you can actually take that wall out or not. And I think that's fantastic information about the pre and post 1970s trusses. Uh, the post 1970s, generally speaking, spanning exterior wall to exterior wall, and the great majority of homes are built with truss construction trust construction. So um, that'll be great information that I can pass on to clients. So that's, that's new for me to learn. So thank you. And that's, uh, I think, great information for, for uh, home buyers and homeowners. Still, that all said, it's important before you start demoing walls like they do on TV to verify that with a contractor or, you know, call Bradley engineering and you guys can come out for a site visit, you know, for, you know, for, for a site visit to just say, yep, give you the thumbs up or, or not. Usually that would be required through your local, uh, government permitting process too. If, if the removal of an interior wall is, uh, needing to be permitted, they're going to want the statement that the structure is well, still that, sound. That, that begs a question, David. <laughs> to your knowledge, is removing an interior non-load bearing wall require a permit? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know the answer on that. Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, it's not really changing the living space. Um, but I, I wouldn't put my life on it. I, I, I don't think it's required, but I'm not positive. And, and here's the other rule of thumb. Um, when in doubt, call the county, call the city, ask them. It doesn't hurt to ask. Better safe than sorry. Truth be told, if you ask, they're going to say you need a permit 99.99% of the time anyway. So get the permit, protect yourself. That'll be important to do because when you sell a house, you're going to have to check a form on your uh, disclosure form saying if you did any alterations, remodels, or repairs, whether or not you received a permit for it. And you can at least say we called and asked and they said a permit was not required or it was required and here's a copy of it. And okay. every jurisdiction is going to have uh, their own set of, of permitting requirements. All right, let's shift gears to seismic. Uh, the I have a lot of clients from California who come up and are very concerned about earthquakes. Uh, and they will ask me, you know, just need to make sure that this home built in 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, what have you, is up to current seismic code. And I will tell them categorically it is not because codes change over time. We've learned a lot over time. And and David, you can rebut me if, if I'm wrong here. I'll let you come in here for a second. But, you know, what are we looking at? Uh, you know, is it, well, for, I'll just say, is it possible to seismically upgrade an older home and for a typical I know they're all unique, but if for a typical three-bedroom, two-bath home, two-story house, what are we looking at in terms of general cost to do so, to bring it up to current seismic standard? Yeah, yeah, I need to take about three steps back here. Um, so I hit you with a lot there. So, yeah, no, exactly. No, it's fine. Um, so, basically, the, the, the current seismic retrofit on, on buildings, on houses, uh, actually... You can Google Project Impact, um, and it's in C it's in Seattle. They they they're way ahead of the curve on this, so they you can actually get uh, your house uh, seismically retrofitted, and they have prescriptive requirements um, for this. And uh, you can just Google it. I I can even just email it out if you want. Um, and they're basically just you know uh, cookie cutter. Uh, uh, seismic retrofit, but essentially what it consists of, um, and it, and it really only applies again to, you know, the seventies and earlier, I should say probably pre seventies, cause that's really when they really started to enforce, you know, the anchor bolts, uh, et cetera. Um, so, so basically anything post seventies, uh, will generally speaking, 99% of the time will have your anchor bolts. Uh, which is fastening the house to the foundation. And the seismic retrofit that is currently done is limited to uh, making sure the house does not slide off of the foundation. They have found in California, in particular in previous earthquakes, so that the real risk on for, for houses, houses do very well, by the way. Uh, they're, you know, they're very resilient, uh, you know, in seismic, in earthquakes and wind. So what they found is that the houses would just slide off of the foundation and it would just slide, you know, maybe a few feet or something like that. So essentially the, the seismic retrofit is limited to making sure that the, the house is not going to slide off of the foundation. And if there's anchor bolts, that has generally been considered adequate to prevent the, uh, 
the the house from sliding off of the foundation. Now, currently, you know, we, we go above that, you know, the current standards and everything like that. But generally speaking, if somebody says seismic retrofit, it's basically uh, it's using this project impact uh, documentation. And uh, essentially what that does is uh, install anchor bolts. Simpson uh, is another great resource. They have a specific catalog on seismic retrofit. They have lots of anchorages, uh, special hardware that, you know, fasten the, the sill plate uh, to, the, to the concrete. Um, and uh, so anyways, uh, did, I, did I answer your question, Tim? I, I had to kind of step back a little bit. No, absolutely. I think that's great. And the, the context of, you know, California and the history that we've learned there with houses sliding off of foundations, I think that's great that uh, Project Impact and Simpson, their hardware catalog with respect to seismic upgrades is a great resource that uh, any any potential contractor or home buyer or seller can use to uh, keep their houses secured to mm-hmm. the foundation. So exactly, fantastic. Yeah, and and let me just mention, if somebody is handy, they can do it themselves. Um, I mean, it's it's all very simple tools. Uh, so you you know, if somebody wants to go into their crawl space or you know, go into their garage, it's uh, it's it's all it's all super easy. You know, and again, this really only anything. Uh, 70s or later, you, you really don't even have to worry about it the way that we conceive of it up here in, in the Northwest. So anything 70s and later, you don't even really have to worry about, uh, you know, any seismic retrofit, et cetera, the way, the way that we have conceived of it. That's fantastic. I think that's just great peace of mind information, and I look forward to conveying that to clients. Um, David, we could talk for absolutely ever about all the myriad uh, structural issues with homes, and we've just kind of tipped on the tip of the iceberg here. But I want to keep this within time. So let's let's you know have. Do you have any you know special anything you'd like to add to this conversation before we wrap up, or any you know fun stories or or uh, you know tricks or tidbits of information that you think would be useful for our audience? Yeah, you bet. Um, well, let me, let me just talk about roofs because this comes up quite a bit. Uh, it is relatively easy to vault roofs. Um, and uh, like I say, we, we do this all the time. You know, you can either, you know, put a ridge beam up there and convert, uh, you know, trusses, um, you know, just the top cord um, you know, and then sister on like, uh, you know, a two by two by 10, you know, to the, to the top court, let's say it's a two by four or two by six and, and vault. That's, that's pretty common. Another easy way to do it is to install collar ties, you know, the, the horizontal members. Um, so it's, that's, like I say, we, we get a lot of calls on, you know, vaulting roofs and ceilings and stuff like that. That's, it's relatively easy. Um, and uh, let me see here. Which is fantastic because people uh, get tired as as of the, those. People get tired of those eight foot ceilings. So that's a fantastic piece of information. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then as far as cute little stories, the only only one we've had lots of cute little stories over the year. But uh, you know, as as you know, you know, we live in Bellingham, and we kind of joke that Bellingham runs on cannabis and brew pubs and. Uh, we seem to be like the capital of, you know, cannabis and brew pubs around here. And a few years ago, we got called out to a brew pub. They were thinking about converting to a, a, a this existing building to a brew pub. And uh, uh, an, our, 
architect, a fairly well-known architect, had drawn up all these grandiose plans and everything to to make this into a, a brew pub. And uh, so we go out there and we look at it, and uh, this is a classic where it was just a, it was a, the existing building had a stem wall and no foundation whatsoever. So uh, that kind of quashed it, and then eventually they they had to. They were under budget problems, so they they just wound up with uh, sh- uh, shipping containers. You know the shipping containers that we use. You know the big steel shipping containers. So that was sort of interesting. And then I guess the last little thing it's it's a classic. Uh, it's kind of a dweeb engineer joke, and it's uh, you know it, you know people talk about PTSD quite a bit. You know the post traumatic stress disorder and. Uh, so, you know, obviously it's it's a serious thing, but we see it all the time because we have all these people who want to get rid of posts and uh, we get calls all the time, you know, everywhere and, you know, post, they can't put their pool table or it's right in the middle of the living room. So that that's pretty common as well, the PTSD in our, in our world here. <laughs> Those are great stories. That's so much fun to hear about uh, just what we all run into in the field. So thank you. And uh, if, if with your per- with your permission, I may may uh, steal that acronym for future stories too. <laughs> so, I'm oh yeah, you. no, absolutely. You know, the other thing is it's kind of like the bumper sticker, and we work with a lot of new construction, and uh, you know the the old bumper sticker asphalt is forever, and uh, so we always try to discourage people. We always say posts are forever because you know it's obviously not true, but it's easier to engineer them out rather than put them in initially so right and it kind of sounds like a good story is to not put the cart before the horse when you're talking about that particular uh brew pub and the architect is that you know you've got to know what you have before you make big plans and and start spending big money that's absolutely true yes Mm -hmm. okay it's a wrap we hope you've enjoyed this podcast if so please give us a rating thumbs up and comment which really helps build audience and awareness of our program Special thanks to David Bradley with Bradley Engineering for his participation and expertise. You can reach Bradley Engineering for all your building structural needs at 360-752-5795 or bradleyengineeringinc.com. They're really a great company. Special thanks also to David Baker with Cellarat Recording for studio and production. Our next podcast will feature Lori Reese, owner of Remax Whatcom County, Inc., She started her REMAX office in 1991 and now has over 100 full-time brokers, so she's quite experienced and very well-respected. We'll be discussing all sorts of topics, so it should be a blast. For your real estate appraisal needs, please contact Elizabeth Hans with All Islands Appraisal at 360-317-5845 or www.allislandsappraisal.com. And for your home and commercial building inspection needs, please contact me, Tim Hance, with All Islands Home Inspections at 360-298-1163 or www.allislandsinspections.com. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any suggestions for interviewees or future topics, please let us know.